Hey there, and welcome to the Social at Cafe podcast. This is a light-hearted educational series fueled by coffee and conversation, where we answer the question, what is social work? So go brew your favorite drink, tell everyone you are doing some professional development, and come join me, Dr. B, in the Social Work Cafe. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of the Social Work Cafe. It is my great, great pleasure to introduce you to someone who I've only just met myself. Well, this is our second time meeting, courtesy of our dear friend, Carice McNamee. It's my great pleasure to introduce you to Michaela Higgins. How are you, Michaela? I'm good. I am. I'm good. We're both doing pretty good. We are recording this in January. We're just talking about this before we hit record and it's a Friday afternoon as well. So things are a little bit more laid back in our lives, hopefully. I was thinking maybe we should have made this a happy hour recording in theme for the cafe and I should have brought along a cocktail or a drink maybe, but I've got my water to keep me going. I've I've got my tea, so... It goes well with the title of this topic today around, you know, is self-care more about more than just hot baths and tea, but what kind of tea do you drink? Look, I have a big tea collection, a very big tea collection. Today it's just an English breakfast, but I will drink at least one cup a day, sometimes up to five cups a day of various teas. That sounds like me and coffee. Although it's not oh, like I do various ranges. Well. Oh, nice. This is not an either or situation. <laughs> not binary here. We're not binary. No. No. <laughs> well, before we talk about workplace self-care, and we've kind of already been getting into it before we hit the record button, talking about what's going on in our lives and how we're doing. But we wanted to also do an, start off with a bit of an acknowledgement of country. And I, as many people already know, I am on beautiful Wiradjuri country of my hometown of Wagga Wagga. And I, I will say the proud nation of Wiradjuri, that is a phrase I often hear when I'm at local events and there are elders there speaking and doing a welcome to country. What country are you located on, Michaela? So I live on Wangal country, which is part of the Eora nation. Lovely. Um, and it is a beautiful country and it, the, the lands and waters here are just, they're incredible and I feel so privileged to be on this land. And I think especially today, recording this the day after the day after the 26th of January, which is a day of mourning and a day of invasion and day of survival for Aboriginal people mm. and knowing that we're social workers and that social work is inherently grounded in a westernised view and that decolonizing social work is such a huge part of the work that we need to do as professionals in this industry. I think acknowledging the country that we're on is just so important for me. Um, and paying my respects, of course, to, to the elders, the past and present, and to all of the amazing Aboriginal people that I have the privilege to work with. And I also just, I want to commit to listening deeply and having my eyes, ears, and heart open to the voices of the Aboriginal people around me and actively working to decolonize the industry that we're a part of. I love that. And I think it's also a topic I will be having later on in the podcast I have a few fabulous colleagues who write and lecture and do all sorts of things in this space. And it's a very live conversation, but it also needs to translate into action, doesn't it, when we talk about decolonization. So, yeah, we wanted to 
not only just do an acknowledgement of country, but acknowledge when we are recording right yeah. after, yeah, day of mourning and invasion day. The ABC Indigenous page really stood out to me yesterday of some of the content they put around that what's known as Australia Day on the 26th. There was a day of mourning amongst many First Nations uh, across Australia decades and decades before the, the 26th became Australia Day. So thank you for sharing that. And I also just wanted to acknowledge how we both are kind of settling in and slowing down to be more hopefully reflective and take our time with this conversation, which is really important when it comes to the topic of workplace self-care. Self-care is just something that is at the forefront of my mind because I feel like it's become such a neoliberalized term that we put a lot of it back on the individual you know, Michaela, you, the social worker, have to do stuff to look after yourself and make sure you're managing yourself. And and it's that's something I want to disrupt in this conversation a little bit with you today. And again, all credit to Carice for connecting me with you. I didn't know you before this. And so the chance to get to know you and hear about your work is really exciting. So tell us about more about your social work background. So I kind of stumbled into social work almost accidentally. When I started at uni, I took a gap year after high school and I went to uni and I was like, I'm going to be a psychologist. It's going to happen. And then I failed all of my first year math subjects. And I had to kind of rethink. Firstly, there was some kind of context behind why I failed, but it was more about like, is this the right journey for me? And in unpacking where I was at, as a person in first year uni, really trying to dive in to figure out where I want to go in my life. I was talking to some people and some some of people that I really respected suggested that I have a look at social work. And I, you know, took a couple of, of sort of sociology-based courses at the end of my first year, realized social work is absolutely the place where I needed to be and was able to transfer across fairly seamlessly. And then when I finished uni, I hadn't even finished uni yet. There was a student call out for the organization that I work with. And I thought I may as well apply. There's nothing to lose. Worst that happens, like the worst that happens is it's good interview experience. And they called me back before I'd even got my results for my final subject, which was pretty exciting. Wow. Um, and so I feel like every step of the way, it's just been a, a happy little accident <laughs> yes. in Bob Ross style <laughs> that sort of taken me to where I am. But for me, the I've always had a passion in working with young people and with children um, and particularly in the mental health space Mm -hmm. um, and being an advocate and an advocate for changing systems around how we support children and young people with who are battling with mental health issues is really important to me. And social work is a mechanism where I can do that. Fabulous. What a story going from first year psychology where you you said you failed all of the the math-based subjects. All the math subjects, all of them I failed. And then getting to the end of your degree and you haven't even finished your degree and you get offered a job, like, wow, that must have felt pretty good. It did. But more than anything, it told me that I'd made the right decision, that this was the right place for me and that this was the industry where I was going to find my people. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So what kind of work are you doing now? I work in a child protection space. Yeah. And so I work with children and young people who are facing a lot of systemic challenges and facing a lot of hardship in their lives. But I also work, I'm at the moment, I'm actually a step back from that frontline work. And I work with, I work with the people who are working with the kids (laughs) and I do a lot of like coaching and supporting and helping people um, build their skills uh, as social workers themselves. 
Oh, I love that. I kind of like those sorts of roles because it's hard when you, if you miss the frontline work, but if you can be at that team and organizational level, like the, the feeling you can get from achieving change can be pretty cool as well, can't it? It is. And I do get the privilege of still supporting people. I still get some of that frontline work, but I get it from almost an educational perspective at the moment, which is great. So I'll go out and speak to a family with someone else who's learning and I'll help them build their skills practically through role modeling and through teaching them in the field, which is pretty, it's the dream job, to be honest. I feel like I've lucked into this amazing role. So in that case, yeah, you get to actually probably have some positive impact with a family, but also a worker. It's that. Absolutely. Yeah. I get the best of both worlds. I love that. So going to this, I mean, child protection is a pretty stressful environment and there's multiple child protection roles. There's statutory roles, there's non-statutory roles. It's quite a big field, but no less stressful no matter where you are. And things like indirect trauma, you know, where we... So for those, if people aren't familiar with that, that's when the trauma, the primary traumas that people experience, their symptoms can rub off on us in an indirect way. And we can actually take on traumatic symptoms or there's primary trauma where we actually experience it firsthand in the workplace. So these are really important and topical issues in social work because it can really affect our well-being, And that's where self-care comes in. And if you talk to social workers who have been around for decades, they will tell you it wasn't even on the radar back in their day. And, and the things that they did, the hairs on the back of your head stand up, like the Absolutely. dangerous situations that they were put in. You're like, oh, that's why we have workplace and health safety laws now. Yep, absolutely. The times when it's like, oh, I'm going to go speak to this family and the police are like, we can't come with you without a um, a full background check. And we're like, we're going to go out with a notebook. Yeah, exactly. It's Times have definitely been changing. Still mm-hmm. got a long way to go in some ways, but I'm, I'm curious for you. I've been giving you sort of my perception of, of how self-care has been described or is described what about for you in the course of your career including at uni how was self-care portrayed to you so we only from memory we didn't touch on it a huge amount at uni Mm. um self-care it was mentioned but we didn't go into depth around what that means or what that looks like but when it has been described it's been around you know make sure you're taking care of yourself make sure like oh this is a it's a really difficult area that we work in and you need to make sure you're taking care of yourself and then asking you what do you do to take care of yourself what do you do to make sure that you're okay at the end of the day which kind of replicates Um, what our organizations often do pretty much in terms of what self-care should be Yes, absolutely. Taking care of yourself and finding what works for you and giving yourself those moments of peace is really important, but that's only one part of it. Mm. And that's not always seen or acknowledged in the systems that we work in. So what does work, yeah, workplace self-care look like in the work that you do? There's a big role that I think advocacy has to play and Mm. advocating for yourself, advocating for your colleagues. I guess what I've been thinking about recently is this idea of ethical tension and that self-care and ethical tension often partner in the workplace. So if you're working within a system that you don't agree with or that there's a way that the system's working that isn't sitting right with you and there's nothing you can do and you have to work within that system, it's really hard to come home at the end of the day and think about the ways that you can be okay and do some yoga and have a cup of tea and be okay, that it doesn't work properly. So there is a level of if the system's not working, of advocating for change, but also for for not not standing by silently and accepting it. Like the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. 
So taking a stand as much as it's hard, if you're advocating for yourself and you're advocating for your, the people that you're working with, it makes it easier at the end of the day to come home and be okay with the work you've done that day. It means that you can take that minute, have a cup of tea, meditate, do yoga, go for a run, whatever it is that you want to do and know that you're, you're doing something to change the system, not just dealing with it at the end of the day. Yes. So when you're talking that, it makes me think like the first scenario you gave where Mm. you said, if you were just sort of silent, you know, no amount of yoga or hot baths and tea um, when you come home is necessarily going to help you with your own self-care because I don't know, I just felt like a sense of helplessness. You, 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 you'd be stuck in a sense of, yeah, feeling helpless in what you could do. But when you become an advocate for change, which is very integral to social work, we, we see ourselves as advocates in so many ways. To me, I guess that also brings about the possibility of hope, which is an important thing we need for our self-care to feel like we can change things. I completely agree. I think if you don't have hope, it's going to be really difficult to keep yourself emotionally healthy through the work that we do. Like we work with the most vulnerable people and we work in the most difficult systems and often in really big systems where change happens, if it happens at all, it happens incrementally. And if you lose hope, it's really hard to be okay at the end of the day. So whatever it is you need to do just to keep hope, I think it's such an integral part of self-care. So how do you do that, sort of foster that hope and that self-care for yourself, first of all, and then for your team? What are the things that you do in your role with your team members? But let's talk about you. (laughs) I guess I've got a couple of things. I'm going to be vulnerable at the moment. This is very much a do as I say, not as I do situation. I think there's a few social workers who would listen to this going, yeah, I've got the same thing to say. (laughs) Just because it's been a while since I've had a break and I am, um, we were saying before we started recording, I'm 10 days away from going to Europe and it's been a while since I've had a long break and this, like I'm going away for a month and that is a big part of my self-care right now and taking a whole month off work is huge. Um, but I'm very privileged in that I grew up, so I'm Jewish and one of the core parts of at least the Judaism that I practice Mm. is a concept called tikkun olam, which means healing the world. Um, and when we think about healing the world, it comes in this kind of concentric circles system where in the middle is you and outside of that is your immediate family and then is your community and it builds out until you get to the world and you can't start on the outer circle. You have to start on the inner circle and you have to start by making, you don't have to complete the work in the inner circle, but you have to start there because if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take that next step out to the next circle, Yeah, your family. You and got then, nothing for others. You got nothing. Yeah. And I love the analogy as well of um, if you're on an airplane and the oxygen mask comes down, you have to put your own on first because if you pass out, you literally can't help anyone else. Especially children. They say that like, yeah. parents, I'm sorry, but put it on first and yes. then your child. Because Yes. Yeah, if your child passes out, you can still put the oxygen mask on them. But if you're passed out, you can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. I think for me, it is as, as hard as it is. And sometimes I need a reminder. It is that I have to take the time to look after myself. Yeah. And also knowing that, or at least I work with other social workers and they are phenomenal. And I know that if I need to put something down because I don't have the emotional capacity to deal with it that day, someone else is going to pick it up mm-hmm. and they're going to do a great job. And I'm not worried that the work's not going to get done. I also 
remind myself on a regular basis that as social workers, we are not emergency services. If someone needs our help right now, we're probably the wrong people to call. They should probably be calling triple O. Yeah. So it's okay to take a minute to slow down and to do the things that you need to do to be okay. And then come back to it in an hour a day, a month. That is so true. I even say that working at a university because sometimes you get these ping, ping, ping emails and it's such a yeah reactive culture too because we're used yes. to that on the internet and social media. It's like, actually, I don't need to react. Yes. Actually, I don't need to. Yeah, we are yes. not an emergency service or a crisis we are not. in that way. Yeah, that is important perspective. But also going back to what you are describing about your Judaism, I thought, gee, as you are describing that, it reminded me of ecological systems theory and that multidimensional view of social work with, yeah, the inner and the outer circles, how complementary it is to that and how we need to start, um, yeah, start with the self when it comes to self-care. You also reminded me of actually one of my, the PhD people I um, interviewees. Yeah. I think her pseudonym was Claire and she spoke beautifully about that as well, about that was something that was really important in her first year out, actually learning what self-care really meant. Because, And this is all in the PhD. I'm not revealing anything sensitive. She talked about working in mental health and a client suiciding. And, it, and she didn't expect it to impact her the way that it did. And she ended up, you know, talking with her supervisor and putting in for some leave and went on a retreat, I think, as well, because that was her kind of thing. But she came back saying, geez, I've actually learned how to be, quote unquote, selfish with my self-care, like not selfish in the bad way that we think of, but she just realized she was trying to give far too much to everyone else and it was depleting her and she had to really reorientate, yeah, back to what can I do? And I think sometimes we, we think of self-care as selfish, but that undermines, undermines, I guess is the wrong word. It's that idea of like, if self-care is selfish, then what you're expecting me to give you is not 100% of myself because unless I'm taking care of myself, I can't give you what you need from me as a, as a client, as a colleague, as whatever it is, oh. that I need to take the time for myself. Otherwise, you're getting a substandard service. So is that. it selfish to take that time or is it actually you're making yourself a better social worker? Who is it? Audra Lord. I think this, um, she's a black feminist from the U.S. Is that Audra Lord? I really hope it is. Please, someone correct me if I'm wrong. But she says, like, self-care is an act of self-love. It's actually, for women, a political act in that way. Because, yeah, because I just, as you're talking, I'm like, oh, this is so much about how women are often socialised into just giving everything for everyone as yes. in a caring role. And it, it's it's impossible. You cannot. You cannot. You can't. You, you only have 100% of yourself. And some of it has to go to, like, your basic needs. Yeah. And, and some of it should probably go to your non-basic needs as well. <laughs> Yes. And I love how you were saying then. So the idea is to figure out what are your particular needs mm -hmm. and your own, and I guess that applies to self-care. And when you said you've got a trip coming up and by the time this episode <laughs> comes out, well and truly back from the trip. So I'll have to find out how it all goes. I'm the same. And I know, I think it's Belinda Cash, um, one of my colleagues who said like one of her self-care things was always having the next holiday booked. Yeah. And I've had other people say that that's something that works well for me. The last couple of years it didn't. I was like, I don't want to go anywhere because of COVID. But this year, something just like a light switch just flipped for me. And I'm like, I need to start booking stuff. I need to get out. I need to do stuff. Yeah. So you got to find what works for you though, don't you? You do. But I also love what you were just saying there. What works for you one year is actually going to be different to what works for you the next year. 
It's not. And that's okay. Like if you, if your self-care has been meditation and yoga for six years and you find in that seventh year, it stops working for you. That doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It means that you're changing. We're all humans. We're humans working with humans and we change. We change a lot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you need to find your new self-care, then find it. That's fine. Yes. So when you were speaking before about like the organizations, they're busy, they often fall into a crisis mode, which actually reflects sometimes our clientele. Like, and I think there was some literature in the burnout space many years ago around how organizations sometimes reflect the clients that they work with. And you have to be very mindful around that. (laughs) So speak to me about what you do a little bit more at, yeah, in your daily work to manage that busyness, that stress, Yes. So that it's so that self-care is not purely about the holiday to Europe or things outside of work. I'm really fortunate that in the role that I'm in right now, my team and my manager are incredible mm-hmm. and they really truly believe and embody that's that idea of slowing down to speed up and that that applies to you as a person as well. That, that taking that time, that taking the extra 10, 20 minutes hour at the front end is going to save you time in the back end. And that also applies to self-care and taking care of yourself. Because if I push too hard at the front, I'm going to need more time off at the end. Mm. So I was having a pretty rough time towards the end of last year. I was really struggling. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of intense situations going on and a lot of people who were very, very stressed, uh, myself included. So my manager actually offered a weekly 15 minute to half an hour check-in just just that to see how I'm doing to see to allow me to kind of process Mm. the emotional side of what we were dealing with every day out loud to her she could be a bit of a critical friend to me and tell me like yep you're on the right path or no I think you need to rethink that or it sounds like you're sitting uncomfortably there do you want to explore it for a minute um it wasn't a full supervision every week. It was just a check-in, but it made a huge difference knowing that it, it, she was validating the way I was feeling. She was able to say, yes, I recognize what you're going through externally. This is a reasonable response for a person with empathy to, yes. <laughs> to experience. And here's how we're going to do it together. Oh, I love that. So it's also validating and normalizing, like, going, yeah, that's a very normal response to have in the situation you are in. And for the clients, that's a trauma-informed kind of manager is. there, isn't it? Yeah, but it also, really I get a sense your manager injected some hope into the conversation, like going back to that word, like, this is what we're going to do about it. So it kind of breaks, because when we get stressed, we often get stressed that we're stuck, Yes. And we're going around in circles and you need like someone to open a window or a door for you to escape. And it sounds like that's what your manager was doing. Am I correct? She absolutely was. It was a circuit breaker, I think, um, which was really helpful. But that, so I've, she's been my manager for close to a year and a half. Uh, Not every manager is like that and not every workplace is like that. And I've experienced. But go find them. (laughs) Find them and follow them. them. (laughs) Find them and follow them. and it is, but it is hard sometimes if you don't have a manager who does that, or if you're in a, in an environment that, um, that embodies the attitude that if you're struggling to cope with the content that you're not cut out for the work, yes. which I think undermines social work as a profession in general, because if you weren't struggling to cope with the content, then it means you're probably not connecting in the way that you need to with the people around you yeah. or that you're at that level of burnout where it's too much 
and you don't have your, that your cup is overflowing and you do not have any more to give your, your cup, your emotional cup is full. The cup metaphor gets me every time because there's a full <laughs> cup and there's an empty cup and they're two different metaphors. And I can never remember which one I'm going with. <laughs> just Let's just imagine the cup is spilled over. It's spilled over. You have no more space. You've got no more space in that cup. And so anything else it you can't, you can't process. You just imagine. Absolutely. But I don't think that means you're not cut out for the work. It means that you have feelings and God forbid a human being in this line of work have feelings. But that is something that is still not recognized enough at the organizational level. I think this is, I've had this conversation so many times over the years, when you look at workplace health and safety laws and how far they've come, you know, there's always been this huge recognition of the physical, like one of the first things I learned, even at TAFE doing youth work, this is how you lift a box because you are yes. because the most common accident. <laughs> the signs in the workplace about box lifting. Like the last time I lifted a box was, I don't know how long ago. And yet there are signs. It's the first thing. There are no self-care signs. No, we've nailed the physical stress and the physical stuff around workplace health and safety, not the psychological. And I, I reckon that will come, you know, through probably lawsuits and workers' compensation, unfortunately. But, but this is a thing like we need, I, when I lecture on this now, I think it's come a long way for me to, I try and lecture of, of self-care being a shared responsibility, you know, between you and your organization, there are things that your organization really should be doing to minimize those risks, those psychological harms and risks that are inherent to, um, you know, social work practice and psychology and, and all the human services. So for you, let's just think, imagine you were kind of in an ideal kind of world or organization, and that could be your current organization, but describe to me what, organizations can do to create an environment for this kind of self-care to thrive? I think there needs to be a sense of safety that people are allowed to process their emotions without being judged. Um, And I think that if we normalize people feeling their feelings when they happen and not trying to like wait for the appropriate time, that will, that will help a lot. Um, And if everyone, if that's, a part of the workplace you work in, it means that people will also, I guess, get better at supporting each other through those moments. Mm. So I guess like what comes to mind is um, I've been fortunate enough to sit in a few reflective discussions recently and just working with people to create a space where it's like, what did you need? What did you get? What didn't you get? And how can you communicate that better? And it would be great if the organisations that social workers got to work with, if that was just... Every time you come back to the office, every time you work with a family, every time you come back and you say, what did you need and what did you get? And how do we make those two things match up? Make it standard. Exactly. Mm. I also think supervision has to happen. And supervision is not the same as reviewing your workload. They are different things. Administrative or caseload. That's that's only one potential arm of supervision, isn't it? Yes. When I say supervision, I say we work with people who are at often the worst points in their lives and we need an opportunity to process, to reflect on what we're doing, to sit, sometimes to sit in discomfort if we've done something that we wouldn't like to do again, if we've made a mistake, because we all make mistakes, all of us, all the time, (laughs) we're human. You know what I've just been thinking, just here's my, my, a bit of a scattered brain. Um, Self-care doesn't mean being happy all the time. And a safe work environment environment does not mean that you feel comfortable all the time. You should still be learning and learning happens in discomfort. If you do make a mistake 
if you do something that doesn't align with your own ethics or your organization's ethics and yeah. values, you need to be able to call someone out on that or to be called out on it and sit in a space of learning. Otherwise, we're not going to advance the career pathway. We're not going to advance social work. We're not going to decolonize social work yeah. until we can do that. So for me, self-care is being able to, to be safe, to feel your feelings, to be safe to reflect and to be safe to learn. Because if you're not learning, you're going to miss stuff and you're not going to be able to continue growing. I love every single bit of that. And you know what? That really resonates with a lot of the literature that I collect. I am a hoarder of literature. (laughs) And one of my biggest kind of files in my endnote is around self-care. And you've just hit kind of every single nail around. Like there's so much, like there's stuff around what, yeah, what are the signs of burnout? But also what are the signs of a good workplace, a bad workplace? And a lot of it does come back to a learning culture. Yes. But also safety. You're right. Like there needs to be, and we need to resist defensive practice because that has creeped into a lot of social work because of the risk discourse. You know, like when an organization, and I think particularly statutory child protection, there's a risk of this because Ed's role if a kid dies, you know, in care or all sorts of things, but we need to somehow get a balance because yeah, w- workers will not be able to open up to reflect, to improve if they, if they feel like they're under that threat of risk and defensiveness all the time, that there's got to be a culture from the top down of safety and learning. And I guess the way that you do that or the way that I'd like to see that done is really reflect early and reflect often that if supervision and reflection happens from the day you enter that agency and it happens every one to two months, then you're not waiting for that critical incident to happen before you sit down and think, what could we do differently? You're doing it every, every time you go visit a family, every time you have a session with someone, you're thinking, you're stopping and thinking, what can I do differently next time? Yeah. And also we work with humans and we can ask them what they'd like us to do differently too. It doesn't just have to happen from other social workers. That's so, right. That's feedback informed treatment. What my colleague Will Dobud is all about. Yes. And I think one of the things that has, one of the moments in my practice as a social worker that stood out for me the most was the moment when a woman who survived quite extreme violence called me out on my language that I was not, that I was victim blaming her and it wasn't intentional and it wasn't, it, it never is, but I did it and she was right. And she said, I think that the way that, that, that you've said that sounds like it's my fault. And I said, you're absolutely right. That isn't, it is not your fault. And I need to change the way that I'm speaking. And having a, having a person who I'm working with call me on that, like you have to stop and think in that moment and you can't be defensive because that's not going to help anybody. And especially that, that woman who's trying to survive yes. horrendous conditions. And the fact that she had the strength to call me out, a professional in her home, mm. to call me out on my language. And she was 100% right. She should. I'm glad she did, mm. but she shouldn't have had to. And I'm. it was a very big learning moment for me. And sitting in that space of like, I don't want to put that onus on you as a client to do that, but I'm very grateful that you did because it's, made, it's a huge learning moment for me and it will stay with me forever. And that was maybe five or six, five years ago, I think that that happened. Mm. It's that moment in my head is not going anywhere. But that's a great example. Like you said, it shouldn't have had to be, but maybe it did in that circumstance mm-hmm. because you were open to it. You didn't get defensive. You learned, you, you were genuine. Like these are all things we touch on in, in education. Yeah. You know, I think when we can do that and be authentic with people, 
we do create that kind of trusting alliance for them to open up and, and say those things with us. And, and then we do learn. What a great example. Yeah, I think that one, it, that one will always stay with me. But I also, you know, bringing it back to self-care, I think the reason I was able to approach it in a way that wasn't defensive is because I was, I felt safe to do that, that I was with someone who was able to hold me in that space and not make a judgmental comment or not mm. ask me to, to say anything defensive. Like I didn't feel like I had to be defensive. And I was also able to come back to the office and talk about how this amazing woman stood up for herself with me in her house and said, and called me on the language that wasn't okay. And my manager was able to say, you know, to acknowledge the learning rather than to penalize the problematic behavior. Yeah. I'd already done that part myself. <laughs> I'd reflected, I acknowledged it was incorrect. And she was able to say like, great, what do you need from me to keep this learning going? We talk about self-care, but maybe another sort of the other side of the coin then to that is self-compassion. Yes. You know, we don't want to get into a shame cycle ourselves Absolutely. or I mean, but both you and I were talking before we hit recording imposter syndrome. When we say that, a lot of people know what that means and they feel it very deeply in their souls. They really do. But self-compassion is something that we also need to foster in our self-care journey, in our learning journey, because otherwise, yeah, we can get stuck in a shame cycle or feel like we're an imposter when actually we're not. We're just trying. <laughs> I know. And it's really hard when we talk a lot about accountability and how do we hold ourselves accountable for our own behavior? How do we process our learning and take ourselves to the next step? And how do we not fall into that shame spiral that is so easy to fall into? Yeah. But all of those things kind of need to happen simultaneously. Mm. And I think that's where self-care comes in, which is that they all will happen. They will all happen in their own time. And yeah, you're going to feel You're going to get into that shame spiral at some point. And yeah. it's okay it better be better if it didn't happen, but also you can work your way out of it. It's not the end of the world and you can come through the other side. Absolutely. I love going, just thinking back over what you said all about supervision. Yes. And what you said, even at the very beginning about, we have to be advocates often within our organizations to change things. Yes. And I'm just walking away from this conversation today. I'd be like, you know what? We need to start advocating for a real reframe and a shift for supervision to be like what you said, to create that culture of learning from day one, that supervision isn't just this contained little hour that happens once every couple of months. I mean, for new graduates and our practice standards, our supervision standards, it's supposed to be at least fortnightly. I was getting it weekly, but with like weekly in the sense of one week, it was that administrative orientation. How am I going selling in as a new worker and a new grad? And then the next week was reflective supervision. And then it alternated, but it was like, that was really ideal for me, particularly new, but even beyond, I don't think you have to, you should have to be new to get the, the supervision that you need. And there's many forms of supervision. I think that's what we are getting better at in social work, that it can be that debriefing, that 15 to 30 minutes with your boss, like you said at the end of last year, recognizing this is a particular form that you need right now. And that's how we can provide it. So we need, that's probably some advice we need to get out there. Let's go advocate in our organizations to get it's supervision. Tough. It's tough for newbies because like, I mean, when I first started, I don't think I had supervision for two years. Or maybe had one, maybe, maybe one. I don't know how many, maybe four or I five. I hear that too often. That oh. Yeah. 
And if you're new, if you've just finished uni, if you're new to the industry, if you're changing careers, it's really hard to advocate for what you need, especially when you're still learning what you need. Yeah. And you feel like you are junior, even if you've been out in the field for long in a new role, it can sometimes put you back into a kind of junior mindset, but absolutely. And that is, it's hard to advocate for that. And the only thing, the only suggestion I have is just book it in there. Book it in someone's calendar. It doesn't always have to be a conversation. It can just be an expectation that this is going to happen. Let me know if this time works for you. Beautiful. I love that. (laughs) What other, well, what other advice would you give to not only social workers uh, for themselves to focus on self-care, but also for pursuing change in their organization around workplace self-care? You know, like we were talking about reflection and critique are really important. If you, uh, you need to know what you need as a starting point Mm. um, in order to advocate for it. I also think a lot of us in our area are quite fortunate to have unions and associations supporting our practice and they can be really great resources. Um, And it's really helpful often to become members of those um, unions, associations, et cetera, because they give out advice, they give out continuing education, they give out continuing learning all the time that we can rely on and learn from. And that can then, you can take that away and advocate within your, within your agency system organization. I've done that myself as a new grad when I contacted the ASSW for some help with a tricky thing at my organize. And they were so helpful in the support that they gave me because I did feel a little bit like oh my gosh I could be putting my head on the chopping block here but but I did it I was scared and I did it and because I had an association at my back oh my goodness that helped a lot and it is like I don't want to pretend it's not tough because it is I think I would say most social workers that I know have experienced bullying in the workplace Mm. and it's not what you'd like to hear because we are all, I'd like to think we come into this profession because we have a level of empathy and compassion for each other. And sometimes that goes out the window once yeah. someone is in the workplace. So it can be really difficult to advocate if you are genuinely worried that you're going to lose your job or that you're going home unhappy every single day. So advocacy when it's safe to do so, I think is really important and not being too hard on yourself if it's not safe to do that. Yes. Yeah. And actually recognizing your limits as well, recognizing that you've done enough. I know one of my other, because yeah, bullying, um, self-care, those were common themes coming out in my PhD as well. And I remember one of the participants also, she left a a job because she, she had experienced burnout earlier Mm -hmm. in her career before she got her social at qual, she was already working in the field. So she already knew what that experience was like. And so that kind of helped her in that as a newly qualified social worker, because she was one of those, she advocated, like her organization was going through really rough changes Mm. and handling it very poorly. So many organizations do. I'm yet to see an organization do change management. Well, if you know one, let me know. I will change jobs immediately. Just kidding. But um, yeah, but like, but she her social work identity was all about advocating, Mm. was about being constructive. She wasn't, you know, yelling at her bosses saying, this is terrible. You're doing a terrible job with this. She's like, okay, this is what we're experiencing and noticing as employees. And here's some ideas we have for solutions. And she, you know, would rally the team. They wouldn't listen, but she didn't feel burnt out because she felt like she was trying, but she knew when to leave the job when it started to get personal for her, where, where she felt like work was coming home with her. 
and that she couldn't switch off because she used to have really clear boundaries between the personal and professional. But when it started bleeding into a personal, she's like, she's like, I'm out because that's my kind of red flag. I thought that was really good self-awareness that she developed. I completely agree. I also have a rule for myself, which is Mm. um, you can't be mad about it if you didn't say it. So Mm. if I have not communicated my needs to the people around me, I can't be mad when those needs are not met. So I think that as social workers or as people, we have an obligation. If we have a need, we have an obligation to communicate that to the person who are going to influence that. So if you need something from your manager, you kind of have to tell them what you need. You can't expect them to read your mind because they're not capable of doing that. Human beings haven't quite We shouldn't expect it actually necessarily. basically. But also if we think about the people that we work with, we'd like them to be communicating their needs to us. And if we're, so so that we can help them achieve their goals. And I think it's reasonable that we have the same expectation of ourselves that we do of the people we're working with. And I can't, it doesn't mean that they're always going to meet that need, but I also like approaching things with an idea of assume, assuming positive intent. So really assuming the person that you're working with has your best interests in mind, or at least is not actively trying to harm you with their behavioral decisions. Mm. And those two things together really help for me with the advocacy space, because if you're going in there saying, Hey, this is actually what I need from you. How can we make this work? Yeah. You're giving people an opportunity to meet your need in a safe and creating that safer environment for everyone. And using that, your social work communication skills to, to do that will go a long way. Absolutely. We can be quite influential or persuasive through the use of our micro skills. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's also helpful even just with your peers to say, Hey, actually what I need from you when I'm having a difficult moment is like in the crisis point, I'd like some sympathy. And then maybe once I've calmed down, can you help me process what I can do differently next time? Or in that crisis point, can you actually leave me alone? Because I need to process this on my own. And then I'm going to come and talk to you afterwards. But whatever it is, telling the people around you what you need really normalizes that everyone needs something different as well. Yes, that's exactly what I was just thinking as you were describing that going, because I might need it in a different way. I might just need to go out, have a get away from my desk, be in a, a different space for a while. We all respond a little bit in our own way. So we need to develop a bit of awareness around it our team members, well, what's their unique style? Absolutely. It helps if I'm telling you what I need, I can then ask you what you need. And it helps creating that reciprocal relationship, which helps people who maybe aren't super confident expressing their needs. It gives them an opportunity or permission to do that. And especially for people who are maybe neurodiverse or who have social anxiety or who are battling their own demons, opening that door can be really helpful. So basically what you're saying, Michaela, is like our clients, we are humans too. We yeah. all have our own individual needs you yes. know, as social workers and we need to pursue them, but understand yes. each other's needs as well. One of the other pieces of advice is what would you say to a client in this situation? Say that to yourself and then also do that. So basically, those, you know, those <laughs> communication interviewing skills, you learn a lot at uni. Mm. They are applicable to your colleagues and to your yes, managers and to other, not just people, uh, like clients, basically. Well, yeah. You know, we learn them because they, I think, I sometimes think calling them interviewing skills is doing them a disservice. It's a bit of a misnomer, I'm now realizing. Yeah, yeah. We should just stick to maybe the more generic communication skills. Yeah, because then you can use them to communicate with anybody. 
yeah. with your family, with your friends, with your colleagues, with your peers, whoever it is. Yeah, absolutely. We teach them because they work. That's right. And they're needed <laughs> everywhere in this world. I, that's, that is something that came out in the, the conversation with Carice, you know, about can you be a social worker in any job? We need social workers in every job absolutely. because we got the skills that are needed in this world. So coming back down onto our soapboxes then. <laughs> I just love everything we have covered around self-care and I do really wish it had the focus and the depth that we're sort of going into today when I was a student and coming out. There are some big challenges for, for our workforce. Mm-hmm. Bullying, unfortunately, is out there. Vicarious trauma, indirect trauma, direct mm-hmm. trauma. So we have to be on our guard with those issues and really look out for ourselves so that we can give the best of ourselves. Agreed. Which I think is a beautiful summary of the conversation then. Let's go to our final question. Pulling all of this together, give us your one sentence definition of what is social work. Social work, it's in the name. It is work that helps society, society's well-being, safety and healing. That's what a social work is to me. It helps. It's work that. that helps society. If you are helping society, you are doing social work. Love it. I don't think I could have put it better. Actually, it's so <laughs> funny. I, I think I have said something similar now that you've said that, where I go, you know, social meet work means being social somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Not like a social butterfly. No, I, I know. Butterfly, but, but you know, yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I do think, think, I think, you know, it means, it also means people, you know, we work with people. We work f- we work with people, we work for people. And when I think about social work, I think about our well-being as human beings. And I think about our well-being as a community and our well-being as a world. So any kind of work that supports those areas for me is part of social work. And if it's not, it should be. And that means we're part of that. Yes. At the end of the day. It really does. And the entire human services industry because there's so many wonderful people who work in this field, social workers, psychologists, you know, allied health. We, yes. we all want to see good things and social work. We matter too when it comes to the wellbeing side and the environment. So, yeah. And I sometimes think where, you know, if you've got allied health who are the brains, sometimes we're the hands, we're the people who we, we do the doing. We're out there with people walking beside them as they're going through everything they're going through. And I think a lot of other professions have the the chance to walk away in a much more straightforward way than sometimes we get that chance to do, that we walk through, we walk beside people through the toughest moments of their lives, but we also get to see people at their most resilient and brave mm-hmm. and inspiring. And I, it's a real privilege to do this work. I think that's a beautiful note to finish this conversation on Michaela. And for me going away, I'll be thinking also about just so much more about my colleagues um, and the people that I work with and not just, yeah, the, the communities that we want to work and walk alongside and, and work for. And I think you're right in saying it's about with and for. There are times when we're advocating with and people, you know, we're seeing them advocate. And then other times we do, we are in spaces where we advocate for. It's about both and and. So thank you so much for sharing yourself today and right. and just speaking to, yeah, this topic of workplace self-care. I think you've given our audience a lot to think about and consider it is quite important to me in case you didn't realize Mm -hmm. Um, it is something that I don't think you ever finish you don't think you ever can be like tick self-care done 
It's totally nailed that. <laughs> absolutely. It's something that I will always be working on and working towards. Um, and hopefully people have learned something. And if anyone has uh, opinions or perspectives, I'd love to hear them too, because I am always still learning. Thank you. All right. We'll leave things there. Thank you for joining me today. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. You are most welcome to get in touch and tell me what you gained from the show. You'll find my website details and email in the episode notes. Be sure to check out the notes for other links that you can follow up for further learning and development. While you were there, tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the next episode. And feel free to rate and review the podcast so we can reach a wider audience. See you next time in the Social Work Cafe.